Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by us. <laughs> and if you'd like to support our podcast, then please check out patreon.com slash I Know Dino. And you can see all of our rewards and help us to keep the podcast running. Yeah. Although technically isn't the podcast always brought by us? Yes. <laughs> but sometimes there's other sponsors. True, true. This week at Just Us and our patrons. This week in our 225th episode, we have two new ornithopods to talk about in the news, as well as some dinosaur attractions and games. We also have an interview with Michael Demick, who does all sorts of really cool dinosaur research. But we first noticed him because he had a really cool poster at SVP about tooth replacements in theropods. And we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Atlas Copcasaurus. But before we get into all of that dinosaur goodness, again, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Dashiell Hammond, Stego Sophie, Lalan, Ayumi, Paul Acanthus, Lydia, Kentish, Jackson Crawford, Sorian Brandy, and Mayu. Hooray! Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate all your support. And as Garrett just mentioned, you can join this awesome group of people, a growing community, on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. And then you have access to our Discord, where you can chat with us and other patrons. And also, Garrett posts a lot of pictures. Yep. There's going to be a video this week. Ooh. We'll get to that later. Yeah. It's a pretty awesome one. And then, of course, we offer other rewards. So, yeah, check it out. Jumping into the news, our first new dinosaur slash ornithopod. Of this week. Yes. <laughs> We've covered many more in the past. And it was published in the Journal of Paleontology by Matthew Hearn and others. This one was shared with us by James and Aiden. So thank you both for pointing it out to us. It's named Gallinosaurus dorisae. And it's, like I said, an ornithopod. It was found in southern Victoria, nearish to Melbourne, Australia. If you're not familiar with where Victoria is, <laughs> it's the one right across from Tasmania in kind of southeast Australia. But back in the Cretaceous, when this Gallinosaurus was running around, it would have been pretty close to the South Pole back 125 million years ago. One of those Arctic dinos. Yeah, exactly. And it's from the same general area as Quantasaurus, which we've talked about before, and Diluvicursor, which was just described last year. And remember, that one has to do with like flood running. <laughs> yeah. It's named Gallinosaurus because the piece of the upper jaw or maxilla that they found looks kind of like an upside down boat, thus Gallion. It's kind of weird. I think the main reason they're saying that is because there's like four teeth out of all the teeth that should have been in the maxilla that are still there, and they kind of stick out about where you draw a sail if you're drawing a boat and you flip the thing upside down. Because if you remember, maxillas kind of curve on the top. So, you know, if you flip that upside down, it looks like the curved bottom of a boat, oh, yeah. kind of. So, kind of clever. Sort of like if you looked at it like a cloud shape and you're like, what does this look like? <laughs> you might come up with a boat. Or you might come up with a dinosaur that looks like a boat. Yeah. And then Dorisay is after Dr. Doris Siegitz Villiers, a local paleontologist who kind of studied the geology of the area. The entire find is only that one maxilla, which is about 70 millimeters or less than three inches long. So it's a really small piece to name a dinosaur on. It seems like they've been naming a lot of Australian dinosaurs lately from just a partial jaw or maxilla. <laughs> We've talked about a couple of them recently. Right. Well, not too many dinosaurs have been named from Australia. Yeah, and they tend to be pretty fragmentary. But it seems like such a strange bone to find, like a little piece of the skull. You'd think they'd be finding like a femur or something like that. I kind of wonder if it's just like the nature of finding it. Like maybe if somebody sees a partial femur or vertebra, they don't recognize it and get excited about it. But if you see a maxilla, it's pretty obvious to be a bone. Mm -hmm. If you see the shape of it, because it's got teeth sticking out of it and like part of a skull shape, it kind of stands out maybe a little bit more. 
because that's that was the case with one of them in an opal mine. Mm -hmm. It's like a guy opened a bag and he's like, oh, these are teeth. Right. <laughs> What's that from? Whereas if it was, you know, some other like piece of less obvious bone, maybe it would go unnoticed. Since all they found was that maxilla, they can't really tell how big it is. But given that it's only three inches long, it was probably on the small size. And if you saw any of the articles about this, you probably saw that it was a quote-unquote wallaby-sized dinosaur. Yeah. Because that's what almost every headline had in the title. I'm not really sure where that came from. Maybe it was in a press release that they released along with the paper. Or just the fact that it came from Australia. Yeah, and it was like small-ish. But wallaby-sized is a pretty specific thing to mention, considering in the paper itself, they make zero claims about its overall size. Right. But it was a pretty interesting one. It Like I said, it was found sort of nearby where Diluvia Cursor was found. And then they also said that it was found in a sort of volcanic clastic sandstone, which I think Ooh. is such a cool description. And either that means that there was just like volcano sediment in rivers that sort of ended up burying it, or it actually got buried in like volcano-related activity. Surprised they only found a fragment then. I, well, I mean, it probably went out in quite an extreme fashion, mm. you know, like getting obliterated <laughs> or otherwise just like scattered pretty violently is my sort of guess Yikes. at what happened. Yeah, it would have been an exciting thing to see. Maybe going out with a bang kind of thing. I guess. On the other side of the earth, we've got another new ornithopod to talk about. And thanks to James for sharing this one with us on Patreon. And it was written by Kate and Jeffsky, hopefully, and others. Well, hopefully is pronunciation, not hopefully it was Kate. It's definitely Kate. Yeah, it was definitely Kate. The last name is up for better pronunciation than I can pull off. And it was published in PLOS One, which we always like because that means you can see all the pictures. And read all the things. Yeah, all the things. There was a lot to read on this one. So like I said, it's another ornithopod. It's from central Texas near Proctor Lake, and it's named Convolosaurus mari. With this one, though, rather than just finding a single maxilla, they found, quote, material from a minimum of 29 individuals represented by nearly every skeletal element, end quote. All right. So opposite side of the world and complete opposite scale of find. But by comparison, this one got basically no press coverage. More opposites. <laughs> yeah. You find a single bone. Everybody's talking about your wallaby-sized ornithopod. You find 29 individuals and eh, who cares? <laughs> so the really cool thing about it is they found a growth series and several articulated fossils to go with it. So really, we have a ton of information about what this dinosaur looked like. Originally, they thought that the large group might mean that it was a nesting site, but they didn't find any eggshells. And convolosaurus is basically Latin for flocking lizard. Yeah. So they're saying that there are these clusters of juvenile specimens because they were kind of flocking together, which could still mean it was a nesting site because you've got all these juveniles together. But since there isn't any eggshell, it's kind of hard to say for sure. Right. could also be one of those things like... You juveniles hang out over here till you're adults yeah. and you're useful or something. <laughs> yeah, I forget what they call that. Some kind of like age separation yeah. behavior that certain animals do. And then Mari, the species name, is after Dr. Ray H. Marr, who made a few videos for SVP and supports the museum where the bones are housed, which is the Southern Methodist University or SMU. The bones were actually, at least the first bones, were first discovered in 1985, and they were really just kind of sitting around waiting for the right researchers to really dig into the <laughs> specimens. Were you looking forward to saying that line, Garrett? A little bit. <laughs> they still don't really know the age of the fossils, though. They could be as young as about 113 million years old, or as old as 125 million years old, and then they said, or older. So <laughs> Quite a range. Sometime in the early... Cretaceous is really what they're saying. The previous find, Gallinosaurus, was about 125 million years old, so around the same time. For the holotype, because you have to pick a specific individual when you're naming a new dinosaur, they picked the largest individual. And I think they did that because 
a lot of times you kind of have to worry about, well, is that actually a new dinosaur or is it just a juvenile of something else? And the bigger one you can pick, <laughs> the less likely it is to be just a juvenile characteristic. And the largest one, which they picked for the holotype, is about two and a half to three meters long. And that works out to be about eight to 10 feet long, but it's not fully grown. So even though they had a growth series and they had a bunch of young ones, they didn't quite make it all the way up to a full adult, even with 29 individuals. <laughs> it can show you how if you just find one fossil, doesn't give you a ton of information about what the maximum size of the animal might be. But the beauty of finding 29 individuals is that they can recreate a complete skull. Although it took combining a few individuals, they still didn't find one that was perfect. For comparison, Convalosaurus's maxilla is about the same length as Gallinosaurus, but it's much taller. So it's kind of a whole different shape to the skull. And really, it's kind of more boxy. I don't really know how to describe it. It's shorter front to back and a little bit taller. Like really, you see in a lot of kind of juvenile depictions of animals, kind of a rounder head. Mm -hmm. Bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. It could be proportionally to the rest of its body. So it's not really great for comparisons, but since it's the only one we have of Gallinosaurus, I guess <laughs> roughly the same size-ish. Wallaby size-ish? Yeah, sure. It's a wallaby-sized dinosaur <laughs> from the early Cretaceous of Texas. It doesn't roll off the tongue when you say Texas instead of Australia, though. Mm. The femurs range in length across all these individuals from about five centimeters or two inches long to 32 centimeters or over a foot long. So there you can see kind of the scale of the individuals. I mean, a human femur is on the order of around a foot long. But then imagine if your femur was only two inches long, like a little baby, little mm. baby dinosaur. Yeah, that's why it has to have that round head. <laughs> I guess. I think that was for a larger individual. Oh, okay. But yeah. They didn't find any evidence of predation on any of the fossils. There weren't any teeth marks on any of the bones. They only found one shed dromaeosaur tooth, even in the area of all of these individuals combined. Interesting. So it doesn't look like they were dying from predation, which kind of makes sense because I always figure if a really small individual gets predated and eaten, you're not going to find an articulated skeleton. You're going to find a couple little pieces in a coprolite somewhere. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they did histology on one of the largest femurs, but they couldn't find any lags. So that could mean that they were all under one year old and that they just grew really fast. Or what the authors think is since they were changing limb proportions between the youngest individuals and some of the older ones, assuming that they get bigger over time, <laughs> it's more likely that they just can't see the lags because of poor preservation. Or they didn't mention it, but sometimes you don't get lags when things are just growing rapidly and it's just kind of a consistent growth. There isn't a slowdown because they're just eating and growing all the time. And so for the first couple of years, sometimes you don't get a lag or in certain species you might not. Their phylogenetic part of the paper showed that it was pretty close to Hypsilophodon, but it's not a quote-unquote Hypsilophodon tid, which I know some people don't think is a valid category anyway, but they did use that word somewhere in the paper. So I'm assuming if they thought that it was a Hypsilophodon tid, they would have said so. And apparently Convalosaurus recreations have been on display around Texas for years just under the label of quote-unquote Proctor Lake Hypsilophodont. <laughs> it's like the Loch Ness Monster or the Proctor Lake Hypsilophodont. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think of that. That's funny. Yeah. Especially considering like Proctor Lake was nowhere to be seen mm -hmm. back then, but it's not a Hypsilophodont. It's not from where Proctor Lake was, but anyway, you got to name it something if you don't have a real genus name to assign to it. But as a result, that means you can already see Convalosaurus if you want to. It's at the Perot Museum of Nature and Science. It's at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. And it's also at the Proctor Lake U.S. Army Corps of Engineers office, which I think is open to the public, but I'm not sure. But it's kind of cool because that one's like right by where it was found. Cool. So there's our two new ornithopods. The most recent ones anyway. Yeah. Recently named, I should say, because they're not at all recent. So in other news in the U.S., the president recently signed a new public lands bill that, among other things, creates five new national monuments. And one of them is Jurassic National Monument in Utah. And it's this 
2,500-acre monument that protects the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry, where more than 74 dinosaur individuals have been found, and that includes 12,000 bones and a fossilized egg. And, you know, that's that quarry that's the big mystery. Was this a predator trap? What happened here? Yeah, that was a really cool one. Yeah. There's currently a small museum there with a skeletal reconstruction of an Allosaurus and Stegosaurus for anyone who drops by. Nice. That's kind of a weird twist considering the same president is considering getting rid of a national monument in Utah and creating a different one in Utah. Yeah, apparently this bill's been years in the making, but I don't know too many of the details. I was mostly focused on the Jurassic National Monument part. Yeah, I guess 2,500 acres is probably a lot smaller than Bears Ears, though. I think Bears Ears is a lot bigger. In other news, India is planning on building their own version of the Smithsonian Museum. At least that's how the article phrased it. It's going to be called the Indian Museum of Earth, and that's to showcase India's evolutionary history. So this April, on the first and second, there's going to be a community of paleontologists getting together to brainstorm and work on a preliminary proposal. And that includes scientists from all over the U.S., U.K., Germany, France, and Korea. And the idea started last September. They want to encourage fossil research and public outreach and student activity. And there's also plans to have a repository of specimens. And then the museum may also have an area to showcase India's marine diversity. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Sounds like a big project, but it'll be really cool to visit when it's up. Are they going to get some of their natural history <laughs> things back from the UK then? If they have a new museum? I don't know. Probably not. It's tricky. I was wondering if that's why they're including scientists from the UK and other parts of Europe, so that maybe they can get some of their stuff back. Maybe. In another part of the world, in Canada, Calgary Zoo's giving their Dinny the Dinosaur statue a $200,000 makeover. So Dinny is this concrete brontosaurus originally built in 1935, and it'll be fixed up by late this spring or early this summer. The repairs are going on on the inside, so we won't you can't see any visible changes, but good to know it's being preserved. I wonder if it's Dinny or Diny. Diny's a dinosaur. Oh, well, D-I-N-N-Y. Yeah, it's kind of vague. It's kind of like sometimes people say, I know Dino for our podcast. Oh, I see. In New York, starting April 19th, there's going to be an animatronic dinosaur ride at the Bronx Zoo. They have 40 dinosaurs, or they will have 40 dinosaurs. It includes T-Rex, Omeosaurus, and Spinosaurus. And the Bronx Zoo worked with Carl Melling, a paleontologist from the American Museum of Natural History, as well as Don Lessam, who worked on Jurassic Park, to consult and make sure that their experience, which is called the Dinosaur Safari, is accurate. And it's a ride. It's meant to be this immersive experience that highlights dinosaur behaviors and show how they survived in their habitats. And then at the end of the ride, it's a fossil dig area. So anybody who wants to visit the Bronx Zoo, it'll be open from April 19th to November 3rd. Cool. We might go to New York sometime this year. Maybe we'll have to swing up to the Bronx Zoo. Yeah. Not too far from the Bronx Zoo in Berkeley, New Jersey, there's going to be a new dinosaur outside Sandcastle Diner. And if Berkeley, New Jersey sounds familiar with dinosaurs, it's because they have Bud the Bayville dinosaur. <laughs> oh, that one. Yeah. So this new dinosaur will kind of keep Bud company. This one looks like it's going to be a theropod, but it's kind of early stages. Is it going to be slightly farther from the freeway? Well, it's going to be outside a diner. Okay. That's the one that keeps getting hit by trucks, right? The Bayville dinosaur? Right. Well, not anymore because they moved it. <laughs> they kept like inching it back and yeah. then it would continue to get hit. Plus, Bud's <laughs> been recently restored, so... Yeah, I think it's safe. I hope so. I recently came across a, it's pretty fun, it's this text-based choose-your-own-adventure kind of game called A Dinosaur Named David Swims in a Japanese Pool. Very specific. <laughs> it's part of Publication Studio Games, and the story, it's text-based, so you're just, you're reading it. It starts off with David the Dinosaur swimming in a pool in Japan as you might have guessed. <laughs> and then David hears a scream and you can decide, do you want to stay in the pool or do you want to see what's going on? And then depending on your choices, you can win or lose the game. And I did it a few times and I lost every time I tried to go back to the pool to swim. No, it's not what David, the dinosaur, should be doing. <laughs> He's supposed to be investigating. Investigating, saving. It's pretty short, but it was fun to read and play along with. So the name of the game should be David the Dinosaur Investigates a Scream. Not David the dinosaur goes for a swim. Or a dinosaur named David doesn't swim long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last, speaking of games, 
you can now buy a toy version of the Chrome T-Rex. That's uh, when your internet's not working and you can play that T-Rex chase game or running game. So it's a toy set that they made. You get the T-Rex and four cacti. So you could recreate the game on your desk, theoretically. (laughs) And you can buy it on a site called Dead Zebra. Although it looks like it's already sold out. I don't know if they'll be making more. That's pretty funny. Yeah. It'd be cool if they made it kind of like Hungry Hungry Hippos or something where there was like a lever that you hit to make the dinosaur jump. Oh, I don't think it's that complex. It's more just set it up to stand. Yeah. More of a display. Gotcha. And before we get into our interview with Michael, we just want to remind you that we have a Patreon and it helps us pay for all of our hosting fees and editing software and equipment and all that kind of good stuff. So if you'd like to support our podcast and get an unabridged version of this interview, because that's available to all of our patrons, you get our premium content feed, which includes a lot of unabridged interviews because we tend to talk for long periods of time (laughs) with our dinosaur experts and enthusiasts that we get to speak with, then head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I know dino. And now for our interview with Michael. We're joined this week by Michael Demick. He's an assistant professor of biology at Adelphi University. He studies body size evolution, bone tissues, and teeth. And of course, since he's on this podcast, you know that he focuses on dinosaurs, both living and extinct. So we met at last year's SVP in front of your poster about tooth replacement rates in theropods. So which Mm -hmm. dinosaurs did you study when you were looking at the tooth replacement rates? Uh, we started the project looking at a dinosaur called Majungasaurus, which is a carnivorous dinosaur from the latest Cretaceous of Madagascar. And what we found was that it was really weird. That it, wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was really unexpected. And so our sampling after that point was really driven by trying to put Majungasaurus in context. So we also sampled another ceratosaur, Ceratosaurus, and another theropod, Allosaurus. Cool. And so what was so weird about Majungasaurus? It replaced its teeth as fast as most herbivorous dinosaurs did. Hmm. So on the order of every couple of months, each tooth socket would have a fresh tooth in it. Oh, wow. Even as like a full-grown adult? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, we, we studied juveniles and adults, and we had a pretty consistent result there. Interesting. So... Yeah, on the order, you know, you think of a a T-Rex would have replaced its teeth every few years. And you generally don't think of carnivorous reptiles or dinosaurs replacing their teeth quickly. And tooth replacement rates in Majungasaurus were on par with those of Triceratops, of Hadrosaurs, of big sauropods. So it was a big surprise. Hmm. That's so weird. Yeah, because in herbivores, they replace their teeth quickly because they're basically wearing them down to nothing, right? Right. Yeah. So if you're, if an animal is going to involve large body size, it's going to encounter a disproportionately large pressure on its teeth in terms of tooth wear. And there's basically two extreme ways that you could, you could evolve a response to this. There's a spectrum of responses, but the extremes would be to make your teeth of better quality. So make one really good, long lasting, large (laughs) tooth. So proboscideans or horses would be good examples of that, or mammals in general, in fact. Or you could replace your teeth quickly and just each one make it as quickly with as few resources as you can. So sauropods would be a really good example of that, making really making teeth really cheaply so that <laughs> they they wear out and you just make another one. So what's what's the difference between like a cheap tooth and like a really nice mammal tooth the main well one of the main differences would be the thickness of the enamel so dinosaurs in general and herbivorous dinosaurs in particular tend to have really thin enamel so a huge sauropod tooth something like camarasaurus the enamel is only going to be about a millimeter thick Hmm. really really thin and so even on something as robust as that really easy to wear away and in majungasaurus the enamel is even thinner than that It's just barely there. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And the other way that tooth quality can change is in the organization 
of the enamel or in the organization of the underlying dentin, which makes up the bulk of the teeth in dinosaurs. So when they have an enamel that's only like a millimeter thick, and then they're kind of wearing the teeth down, does that mean they're like wearing through the dentin for like a good portion of the chewing? Uh, yeah, I'd say, well, definitely once they get through the enamel, the, the dentin will start to be exposed and start to wear away itself. That sounds kind of horrible. That sounds really painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily it wouldn't have been around for long. <laughs> <laughs> so they just kind of went through a process of like have a toothache for like a couple of weeks and then a new tooth would come in and then <laughs> maybe yeah, not. I, there could also have been, um, you know, secondary deposits or calcification inside to sort of temporarily infill, but there would have been a new tooth in each position every couple of months in this animal. So what, did you have any like hypotheses about why Majungasaurus was like cranking through so many teeth? Yeah, the thing about Majungasaurus, there's many things that are odd about it, but um, <laughs> one of the odd things about it is the only confirmed dinosaurian cannibal. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, it's the only one where really say that's the genus and species that was cannibalistic because it lived on island Madagascar uh, around 65, 70 million years ago. And uh, at that time, Madagascar had already been an island for 10 or 20 million years or so. Mm -hmm. And so when paleontologists find tooth marks, they can match up the spacing of the teeth and then the spacing of the serrations on the teeth to know what kind of dinosaur made that tooth mark. Mm -hmm. And on Madagascar, in the Maveron Formation, where uh, Majungasaurus is found, wear on teeth from biting and um, perhaps feeding is really, really common on herbivorous dinosaur bones and on carnivorous dinosaur bones. And so Majungasaurus bones were cannibalized. We know that based on the spacing of the teeth and the serrations on the teeth that it did you know, there was a lot, there was extensive tooth to bone contact. And so our <laughs> hypothesis is that the elevated tooth replacement rates in Majungasaurus are related to that elevated wear from the tooth bone contact. Oh, interesting. Right. Like they were doing more like scraping off the last bit of meat than other dinosaurs might have been doing? Perhaps. Yeah. I think we need a lot more context to say that exactly. So that's just a working hypothesis mm -hmm. because we know that other dinosaurs, so T-Rex itself, there's a lot of bone tooth contact attributed to T-Rex as well. But perhaps it took the more mammalian approach, making larger teeth of better quality rather than smaller teeth of poorer quality <laughs> to resist that wear. Gotcha. Did you find a lot of broken Majungasaurus teeth or like worn and out teeth? Majungasaurus teeth are extremely common. So when you go to any any of the several collections that, that have fossils from the Maveron Formation, there can be drawers and drawers <laughs> of the Jungasaurus teeth. That makes sense. Yeah, they don't tend to be broken. They tend to be shed. So the root, which would have anchored the tooth, is resorbed. Mm. And that makes sense in light of our findings that once every couple of months, these animals were shedding a tooth from each socket. And so there's lots of shed teeth around the landscape to collect now. Gotcha. Was that the first clue that it had weird teeth, the fact that there were so many absorbed? <laughs> yeah, that was one clue. And then um, my hunch, which I have no data to really back up with, is that other abelosaurids have these same fast rates of replacement. Hmm. Because if you look at an abelosaurid skull, they tend to be described as very short. Like So if you think of Carnotaurus or... Majungasaurus itself, it's tend to be described as having a short skull. Like a bulldog or something. <laughs> yeah, I think it's better described as a tall skull. And so the height of that skull is, I think, related to a deepening of the bones which hold the teeth hmm. so that you can have more sets of replacement teeth packed into that skull. Oh, interesting. So kind of like a shark, although sharks do it in a different direction. <laughs> yeah, they don't have to be sort of lined up almost... Uh, crown to root, which is similar to kind of what Majungasaurus would do. They would fold over as they came into functionality in a shark. Yeah. Yeah, my hunch is that other abelosaurids had this fast replacement rate, and maybe they had the same bone tooth contact or bone feeding behavior as well. Interesting. That's really cool. 
that's just based on the my hunch based on the shape of their skulls and the relatively small size of their teeth. Do you think so I we've been frequently asking people about like lips on dinosaurs. So it makes me whenever I'm thinking about lips on dinosaurs, I'm thinking like, well, do they need them because their teeth are getting replaced and it's kind of that balance. So it seems mm. like a bellosaurus almost certainly wouldn't need lips at least for that purpose. Do you what mm. do you think about that? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I haven't really kept up with that debate one way or another. I do know that abelosaurids, the, the texture on their skull bones is pretty different than that of other theropods. Hmm. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they had a different covering, if it was more keratinous, for example, because it is really rugose with lots of uh, little holes for blood vessels. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was a different story for abelosaurids. Interesting. So when you say keratinous, that's like sort of getting beakish mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> yeah yeah and i don't know that that question has been solidly answered but uh you know they're so derived in so many ways so i wouldn't be surprised if there was something else odd about them yeah <laughs> did you look at all at uh any modern animals I'm, I'm guessing crocodilians are probably the only useful modern analog yeah pretty much so tooth replacement has been studied in a few different species of crocodiles so I guess I should talk a little bit about the method of how we know it replaces its teeth every couple of days. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Not just say it. <laughs> so your teeth grow incrementally. They lay down enamel from the inside out in layers, and then they lay down dentin from the outside in in layers. Oh, weird. So the pulp cavity gets smaller as your teeth grow, and enamel gets thicker as your teeth grow. What's really nice is that that growth in dentin has a rhythm to it that's aligned with your circadian rhythm. And so each day you get a dark band and a light band, a couplet. Hmm. And that's been shown in a variety of animals that are living today. And in certain groups, in, uh, in some living animals, the animals have been fed or injected with fluorescent dyes on known intervals, so say every week or every two weeks. And then when the animal sheds that tooth, the tooth can be looked at under a microscope and you count the bands between the teeth and, well, there's 14 bands if you injected it every two <laughs> two weeks and seven if it's every week. So paleontologists can use these daily bands to just simply count up the number of days it took to form a given tooth. So sort of painstakingly under the microscope, you sit there and tally and do it multiple times because you always lose count and uh, <laughs> have multiple ob- observers and observations. So, for example, a big Majungasaurus tooth, which is not that big, would take about 300 days to form. Mm. And so it would have 300 lines inside of it. Its baby tooth, so its successor in the next tooth socket, would have something like 240, 250 days to form. Ah. And then its successor would have something like 180, 190 days. And so we find the tooth replacement rate by subtracting those ages within a given tooth family. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. And so they'd never like fall out when they're done. They just fall out because the next tooth is pushing them out. And it's just a steady state of teeth. Right, right. They actually resorb. They take back into their bloodstream the, the root itself. And then the crown just falls off, falls out. And use that resorbed calcium to make another tooth at the beginning of the process. (laughs) Yeah, cycle it back through. Composting, sort of. (laughs) In a way. Can't help but touch my teeth while we're talking about this. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have any replacement teeth left, though. No. (laughs) It would be nice. It would be. I guess that makes sense. You were talking about how tall their skull needed to be if they've got that many teeth lined up you how many is that it's like six or seven teeth going back up into their head so we didn't destroy any jaws to do this study what we did was cat scan a lot of jaws 19 Mm. different jaw elements and um strangely i'm sure you're both familiar with how beautiful the preservation is of any any fossils from madagascar any dinosaur fossils they're sort of these famous exquisitely preserved things with there's bird feathers there's it's just really great stuff. It doesn't CT scan well. Uh, 
And so we, you know, we had our 19 samples, which is pretty large for paleontology. Mm -hmm. But I, I would imagine we didn't capture some of the smallest teeth with the quality of the scans that that are achievable. So if you <laughs> if if you did, you p- could open up each of the jaws physically, and I bet you would find those smaller and smaller teeth. But mm. we would only see a few generations of teeth. What was encouraging, though, was that our our estimates of those about two months per socket were consistent across all the different samples. Gotcha. How did you get at the number of lines? Do you call them lags and teeth too? No, they're called uh, incremental lines of von Ebner for the, <laughs> the scientists who <laughs> worked on them in honor of that. And so they're daily, daily lines. Is that like an ILV then? Or do you have a nice word <laughs> uh, for it? No. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to know. <laughs> I guess. <Yeah. laughs> So we, we couldn't see those in the CT scan teeth. What we did was, earlier I mentioned how there's thousands of isolated teeth in drawers. We histologically sectioned a bunch of those, and then we could create a relationship, or we could determine a relationship mathematically between tooth size and tooth age. And then we just know the tooth size in the CAT scan, and we can reliably predict tooth age from that. Gotcha. So there were a bunch of teeth in these drawers that didn't have the root resorbed yet, so you knew it was still forming? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that means something had to like smash its head open or something to get that <laughs> yeah. tooth to fossilize. Yeah, I, I, I never actually thought about that, about how many of those actually have their root, but were just lying around in the landscape. That's kind of intense. <laughs> yeah. Lots of cannibalism. <laughs> For sure, yeah. I think you had another paper too that was about, or a poster, I should say, about Allosaurus growth. Right, yeah. So another interesting animal where it's, so uh, there was a study of Allosaurus growth that came out in 2006 by Bybee et al. And there's been a couple of other studies reanalyzing the same data set. Um, And what the subsequent studies have really emphasized is that there's dramatic variation in Allosaurus growth rates and patterns. There are Allosaurus specimens that grew, that were adults, that were maybe an eighth the body mass of the biggest Allosaurus specimens. Jeez. Wow. A huge variation. And so that poster was all about trying to, to assess the reasons behind that variation. So we're... Is there a geographic difference? Is there a time difference in different members of the Morrison formation? Is it maybe an individual level difference? Is it sexual variation? Trying to get at that. So we sampled a few new specimens and we're continuing to sample. I think that we're up to about a dozen or maybe 15 or so. And we need, we need several more before we can really address the question. Do you think that might have been more common in other species as well? And maybe we just don't know because we haven't found enough individuals? Yeah. Yeah. If you only have one, then you'll never <laughs> have an idea, which is the case for a lot of, uh, a lot of different dinosaur species. Uh, for Allosaurus, though, what's, what's interesting is that variation seems to be present within the Cleveland Lloyd dinosaur quarry alone. Wow. Right. So what it means, I really don't know just yet. We're just going to continue sampling. Just adding to the mystery of that quarry. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are they like proportionally similar? Like, does it still look like an Allosaurus, but it's just like a way smaller Allosaurus? Oh, that's really tough to say because there's not a ton of association at mm. Cleveland Lloyd. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and what association there is, unfortunately, I, there's not the best documentation or there isn't 100% documentation just based on the the standards of data collection at the time, uh, most of the bones were collected. So, you know, the new excavations going on at Cleveland Lloyd are collecting all that data, and maybe that can can be addressed with more specimens in the future. I didn't realize they were still digging out bones. Yeah, I, bl- I think that they are still removing them. I, I know that there's still ongoing scientific work there, so there are groups working there. Wow. Because that when was that found? That was like early 1900s? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. A lot to explore there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Cool. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what you guys come up with. Is that also a um, one of your students who did that paper? For yeah, that that's, that's Adrian Flores, another of the master students. Nice. How many master students do you have? Because you had a whole bunch of like co-author <laughs> things. <laughs> uh, I have three. Okay. Yep. Nice. And then changing gears again, I have to ask about this because Sabrina is a huge sauropod fan. <laughs> Sure, sure. You've published about sauropod osteoderms in the past. Why would mm. sauropods need osteoderms? So one group of sauropods has osteoderms, the titanosaurs, mm-hmm. which are, they're the biggest and the smallest sauropods. <laughs> <laughs> it's a misleading name. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> they're, so there are dwarf titanosaurs, which kind of throws <laughs> And a subset of those titanosaurs have osteoderms. So osteoderms are bones that grow in the skin. Today, we have crocodiles, armadillos, and a lot of different kinds of reptiles that grow bones in their skin for one reason or another. And titanosaurs also had, usually, we think only one or at most a few of these osteoderms along their body, except for the case of saltosaurus, which had dozens and dozens of tiny little ones, and maybe it's close relatives, scattered throughout its body. But generally, titanosaur osteoderms, there's only one uh, or a few associated with each individual. Hmm. Or if you have a quarry of, let's say, generally, you don't find a sauropod as a skeleton. You find it in a jumble (laughs) of several individuals, maybe with other groups mixed in. And so let's say you find a quarry, and the minimum number of individuals is six, like there's six left thigh bones, mm-hmm. you're probably going to find four to seven osteoderms. Huh. So the idea is that they only had one or maybe two per per individual. That seems almost like a, a display thing. Like, What else would you need that for? <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. So you would think display and then you look at these things and they just, they kind of look like an almond. They're very boring, low <laughs> in profile. Like it really does just just look like a raisin or an almond. There's not much to it. And so we don't, it doesn't suggest that it stuck out of the body in any flashy way that would have gotten <laughs> attention. And so some colleagues and I published a paper in 2011. So Christy Curry Rogers, myself, and some colleagues, where we took a histological section of an osteoderm from Rapetosaurus from Madagascar again. So mm-hmm. lived at the same time with Majungasaurus. And CAT scanned that osteoderm. And what was shocking was that the osteoderm was hollow. Mm. And Christy actually discovered that while she was taking the histological sample because she drilled into it and it fell inside. (laughs) 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 Not totally not expecting there just to be space inside this thing. And when we looked at different osteoderms of different uh, Rapetosaurus specimens, we saw that the smallest ones were not hollow, and as they got bigger, they got more and more hollow. Mm. And so it suggested to us that these served as a calcium or other mineral reservoir over time, kind of like a camel's hump. <laughs> Could have filled in the osteoderm during times of plenty, and, and when they needed those mineral reserves, could have hollowed it out. So maybe even seasonally changing with that. We know that Osteoderms are an important source of minerals for crocodiles today when they're laying their eggs. Mm -hmm. So they'll not quite hollow out because they're flat plates already, but they'll they'll get spongier on the inside. And so by analogy, we we hypothesize that that's our best explanation, at least for now, that these titanosaur osteoderms were for mineral storage. Interesting. It's more it's you know, it, it makes sense and Essentially, all of the other things osteoderms do don't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> right. Especially when there's so few. Yeah, there's so few. So that's not good for defense. It's not like a shield <laughs> of armor. They are not flashy. They're not like a big stegosaurus plate. Mm-hmm. It's not going to attract anything or, or deter anything um, visually. And so we were kind of just left with the calcium storage or mineral storage in general hypothesis. Yeah. They have a really low uh, surface area to volume ratio, and so they're not they're not at all uh, well suited for dissipating heat, mm-hmm. like a stegosaurus plate or a 
dimetrodon sale might have been hypothesized too. So it's sort of just the best explanation that we're left with. And I think it would be a really interesting project for someone to CG scan a lot more titanosaur osteoderms and determine a lot more about their internal structure. Yeah. It's such a strange thing though, because it, to me, it, it almost makes sense in crocodilians because they're aquatic and they need to stay kind of dense. So they don't have the same kind of pneumaticity that other, you know, the dinosaurs had, but we see in like a lot of other dinosaurs, they have that medullary bone, which kind of mm-hmm. serves the same purpose. And then they don't need another structure to handle it. But it seems like sauropods could have just done that. <laughs> yeah. So sauropods already have this big spongy marrow cavity in their long bones. So medullary bone is a tissue that, that forms in birds today and it forms in the hollow. So In a theropod bone, generally there's going to be a sharp boundary between the bone and the marrow cavity inside. Mm -hmm. But in sauropods, it's a very general transition to more and more spongy towards the center. Mm. And so in a sense, it's not, well, it definitely isn't medullary bone, but morphologically, it's already going to be very, very loose, spongy bone inside of there. Whether or not sauropod bones get more or less spongy throughout the year you would need a much more (laughs) rich sample than we currently have to address that yeah okay so maybe it could potentially be that like they're out of space for any kind of storage inside the body so then they stick this little weird bump on their (laughs) shoulder or whatever (laughs) to store it who knows uh we really there's so few sauropod individuals that are found as individuals Mm -hmm. it makes it really difficult to test because when you find a quarry with several individuals and maybe there's just two or three of these little almond looking bones and when i say little these are still like maybe two or three feet long (laughs) (laughs) an 80 foot long individual um we don't we don't really know where they are on the body right we don't know part of the body what part of the dermis that they would have occupied is this on a lot of titanosaurs or just on a couple? Uh, about about a dozen, maybe two dozen total, somewhere in there. It gets into taxonomic issues and yeah. so on. Because mm-hmm. like a huge portion of titanosaurs are just like a femur or a femur yeah, and a toe bone. Yeah. <laughs> um, proportionally, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I would say that the titanosaur record is getting a lot better. So especially um, there's some really amazing recent discoveries from Spain, mm-hmm. but there has to be a lot more before we understand in more detail. Cool. Yeah. Are there any other projects that you want to share with us that you've been Uh-oh. working on? <laughs> <laughs> Let me think what else have I been working on? I mean, so my field work has been really, has been really rewarding as of late. So I've been working on the cloverleaf formation mm-hmm. and running excavations at a few different quarries there. And we found some really interesting stuff. So we have the first bone bed from the cloverleaf formation. Nice. Um, that's hundreds of bones that we've excavated over the past several years. And um, so I'm looking forward to publishing some of those results. We have revisions of the age of the formation and um, a lot more about the geology since the last sort of major paleontological study of it, which was in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the the field work I've been working on has been really rewarding lately. Cool. Do you go to Madagascar regularly too? I've only been to Madagascar once. I went for the 2015 field season, and it was. I think they told me they have a running joke that whatever you know, I was just a field assistant there, and they said, you know, whatever you study, that's what you find. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I found a lot of baby sauropods that, that summer. Nice. And it was really really fun. So looking forward to seeing those published sometime in the future. But that was a really, really amazing experience and a wonderful trip. Cool. So where should people go if they want to either connect with you or get involved with what you're doing or even just learn about what you're working on? So I have a website, michaeldemick.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Astrophocadia, which is the Zorobot I named <laughs> in, uh, in 2013. So those are the main ways to, to contact me. Cool. I guess I should ask about the sauropod you named. 
You don't have so, that prominently displayed on your website. If I had discovered a named dinosaur, it would be like the number one thing. <laughs> well, it was one of these kind of classic discoveries in a drawer or several drawers. Oh, yeah. Um, because this is an animal I named Astrophocadia in 2013, which was just referred to the now defunct genus Pleurocelis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Pleurocelis was a marsh dinosaur, so the late 1800s, that became this huge wastebasket. And part of my PhD thesis was fixing or treating early Cretaceous sauropod taxonomy. So dealing with that whole mess. And so I wanted to go see all the Pleurocelis out there. And when I went to Fort Worth and I opened the drawer labeled Pleurocelis, I found something really distinct um, and really rare because it was a single individual with a nice part of the tail and other parts of the backbone and the limb girdles preserved. And so I named that as a separate genus. But I haven't named anything that I've discovered or dug out of the ground personally, but that was um, that was the first dinosaur I named. Cool. What does its name mean? It has a few different meanings, actually. So the main meaning is non-twisting tail. So <laughs> it has a, so it's A-strophocaudia. It has an interlocking system in the, um, between the tail vertebrae called the hyposphene hypantrum system, which a lot of dinosaurs have in their backs to lock their backs and make them more rigid. Hmm. And uh, this sauropod just happened to have it uh, extend really prominently into the tail. And it's also a reference to Astrodon, so, uh, the hmm. first sauropod from North America, which is also a defunct genus. So it has a kind of a double meaning there. Cool. Um, for our listeners, if they wanted to find you on Twitter, how do you spell that? Sure. Um, <laughs> A-S-T-R-O-P-H-O-C-A-U-D-I-A. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It was awesome to hear about everything you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It was great. Thanks again, Michael. That was a really great conversation. There's so much interesting research that you've done. And thanks for sharing with us. Yes, thank you. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Atlas Copcosaurus, which was a request from Moss Utah Raptor via Patreon. So thanks. One of the perks of being a patron, you can request dinosaurs. So Atlas Copcosaurus was a basal iguanodont that lived in the early Cretaceous and what is now Australia in the Eumerala Formation. The type species is Atlas Copcosaurus Lodzai, and the genus name means Atlas Copco Lizard. It's named after the Atlas Copco Company, who <laughs> provided the equipment for the dig in 1984, and not the first time that that's happened to an Australian named dinosaur. That's quite the like mouthful to Atlas Copco. We can turn that into a dinosaur name. <laughs> yeah, why not? Dinosaur names are often long. <laughs> that's true. The species name is in honor of William Lodes, who's the state manager for Atlas Copco and who helped with the dig. Atlas Copcosaurus, the holotype, includes part of the upper jaw and partial maxilla, and referred specimens had teeth and maxilla and dentaries. It's estimated to be about 6.5 to 10 feet or 2 to 3 meters long and weighed about 275 pounds or 125 kilograms, and that's based on some closely related species. The first fossil was found in 1979. The upper jaw was found by Francois Boussat who was part of a group of researchers in the Otway Coast. And then the whole thing was found in 1984. Atlas Copcosaurus was the first dinosaur maxilla found in Victoria, Australia. It's just like Gallinosaurus that we talked about earlier. Yes. Atlas Copcosaurus was described in 1988 and 1989 by Tom Rich and Patricia Vickers Rich. And if their names sound familiar, it's because they're the same people who also in 1989 named... Lea Elinosaura, and we covered that dinosaur in episode 71. Originally, Atlas Copcosaurus was referred to Hypsilophodontidae, but in 2004, Norman and others suggested it was closely related to Gasparinosaura, an ornithopod from South America. And in 2010, Agnolin and others suggested that it had a lot in common with Gasparinosaura and Anabicetia, which is an iguanodont from South America, though Agnolin also considered Atlas Copcosaurus to be a nomum dubium. Not everybody agrees with this, though. And our fun fact of the day 
is an update on just how amazing birds can be with their problem-solving abilities <laughs> and how that might extend to dinosaurs. So there was a recent article in Current Biology by Romana Gruber and others, and what they found was that crows can problem-solve in even more advanced ways than we knew about previously. That's scary. Yes, <laughs> especially if you imagine non-avian dinosaurs doing it. So one of the things that makes humans so successful is our problem-solving abilities. And specifically, the way to sort of quantify that is how many steps ahead we can imagine and basically imagining a solution and then the process of reaching that solution. So you can think about playing a sport and, you know, sort of your path to how you're going to get somewhere or a series of events. Or you can think about playing a board game and how if you move one piece, how other people might react, all that kind of stuff is considered the sort of higher level thinking that makes us special. But crows can do some of this too. So <laughs> what they did was they tested crows with a series of problems that required using different tools. And there's this really awesome video that came with the paper. It's about four minutes long and they show all these different versions of testing these crows. And basically what happens is they have a observation stage. So they just put the bird in with the different apparatus and tools, and they let it kind of walk around and look at all of it. And the way it's structured is it's kind of like if you imagine four areas on different sides of a box, but you can only enter the box from the outside. So you can't see, you can only see one thing at a time. You kind of have to walk around the outside of it. And then there's four kind of little rooms, for lack of a better word, that you can go into from the outside. So they just kind of walk around the outside of the box, looking into each little room, and they can see what is in all the areas. And then they give them the first tool that they might need. And what happens most of the time is the bird picks up the tool, goes straight to the room that it needs to go to to use that tool, then gets another tool often, and then takes that to the next room where it needs to use that tool and then gets some food. And this works even if they have fake tools in the mix, if they train them how to use one thing and then they put them in a different thing where now they don't need to use that tool anymore and now that tool is a fake out and all sorts of different combinations, they can kind of visualize, oh, okay, in this situation, I need to use this stick to get that stone and then I can drop this stone on this thing and then I'll be able to get the food or vice versa and lots of different combinations. Wow. Yeah, it was really impressive. It's really fun to watch this video too because the birds just run around the outside of this box. They barely even pause. And I think it's partly because the way that their eyes are structured on the side of their head a little bit more than ours are, they don't really need to like face the box. So it just kind of looks like they're walking around the outside. It doesn't even really look like they're examining what's in the different areas. But once they get the tools, it's like they know exactly what to do. It's crazy. Now, the video is kind of a best case scenario because from the data, you can see that some of the crows definitely were better than others. And a lot of them did make some mistakes, but a few of them never made any mistakes and they always did every experiment perfectly. When they made it a little more complicated and tried to trick them some more, a lot of them figured it out after the first try, but all of them figured out pretty much all of the puzzles after the first or the second try. So they were really good at this. <laughs> And what the author said is, quote, this provides the first conclusive evidence that birds can plan several moves ahead while using tools, end quote. And to me, the really impressive thing is that they ignored those, quote unquote, distractor tools that were in there with them. So if they learned to use a stick a certain way, and then all of a sudden they didn't need to use the stick that way, they could figure that out really quickly. So totally feasible that the raptors in Jurassic Park could learn how to open a door. Yes. But I think really... It makes the opening a doorknob seem kind of trivial because this is more like if they found a tool to reach into the door jam mm -hmm. to open the door, <laughs> like breaking open the door with something rather than just like pressing a lever because pressing a lever is nothing. Right. You know, these birds are using multiple tools, like a tool to get another tool to open a door is basically what they're doing. So clever. Really, really clever. Now, Dinosaurs probably weren't quite as smart as modern crows. It's kind of hard to say, but even if they were close, th those are some smart animals. It's kind of scary. And this is why you think birds will take over again. I do, yeah. At some point. A long time from now, but someday. Maybe. Could be sooner. We'll see. <laughs> well, maybe we won't. Depends on this whole human experiment thing we got going on. <laughs> 
And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And, uh, yeah, if you get a chance, we'd love a review. You can also join our community on Patreon, patreon.com slash inodino. And, of course, follow us on all the social medias. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.